The word never carries a lot of weight. Never forget, never settle, never surrender. And now Dodge is proud to announce Never Lift, the full throttle rally cry of stepping on the gas and never letting up. With the 475 horsepower Durango SRT 392 and the muscle car dynamic duo Dodge Charger and Challenger and the introduction of Dodge Power Brokers, your official dealer for legendary direct connection performance parts. For more on the Never Lift mindset, go to Dodge.com. Dodge is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. When you shop at a Walmart Vision Center, you get it. You know that you'll spend a little less on stylish glasses for the whole family. Welcome to the Vision Center. Let me know if you need help finding the perfect frames. Hey, Mom, you were right. These glasses are cool. Hun, they take our insurance. That means Papa's getting a new pair, too. Whoa, glasses start at just $39. Next stop, groceries. So you can get a little more of what you need. Find a Vision Center near you. Save money, live better. Walmart. This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and this is a version of Avoid the Maze. And I have Henrietta with us today. And Henrietta, how do you pronounce your last name? I don't want to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> it's Ivanans. Like Ivanans. There you go. Like uh, I something. Yes. Okay. And I met Henrietta through one of our other podcasters because I had listened to when Amy Ferris interviewed you. And uh, right away, I connected with you and uh, I read your book. And it was like, there is so much more to you. And I couldn't understand and I don't want to give the book away 100%, but of course, you're going to talk about it. But I couldn't understand how you got from point A to where you are today. And I am so glad you did. You look beautiful. You look healthy. You look happy. Um, so tell, tell our listeners a little bit about your history. Sure. Sure. Well, first of all, Karen, I adore you. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we've connected. And I know we're going to continue to build a relationship around these issues that we both feel so passionately about. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll just begin a little bit with, I guess, my medical history and um, how that all evolved. I was um, 13 years old when my, um, my kidneys, uh, I developed chronic kidney disease. We didn't know that for a little bit, but I developed chronic kidney disease. And um, by the time I was 18, we knew that I was, well, we probably knew beforehand, but I was going to need a transplant. And, uh, my mother was a match to give me a kidney, which was extraordinary and even more extraordinary back in those days. I'm 52 now, but I was obviously 18 at the time. And, um, transplantation was a really new science and my poor mother, <laughs> she was basically sawed open from one side to the next. And Today, it's so different. They do it laparoscopically. Um, but it was, uh, I look back now and I can see how challenging it was for me as a young, I was 19 by the time we had the transplant. The medications that transplant patients are on, the immunosuppressed are very toxic. They have really strong side effects. And um, for a 19, 20 year old who'd kind of had her entire identity ripped away from her, I felt, um, my physically, I had changed. Um, when you looked at me, 
the way I felt physiologically had changed and I felt really, really isolated and alone. And so just as a sidebar, I have to say uh, the development of social media, say what you will, but social media, podcasting, uh, the World Wide Web, it was a very different experience for me to have my second kidney transplant and be able to cultivate, quite frankly, a community of people right. also have kidney transplants who also suffer with these side effects. And then we get into the addiction component. Um, and then my husband and I, we met in Toronto. We married quite young. He was 22, Kevin, and I was 26. And we moved to Los Angeles the next year. And I'm jumping ahead a number of years. My, my addiction, my alcoholism, I use those terms interchangeably. I believe they're the same concept, the same disease. And um, when I was 40, my first kidney transplant went into rejection. And I had no tools. I had no spiritual tools, if you will, but I really had no tools, no way to handle it. And so I increasingly depended on this kind of periodic drinking that I would do, um, periodic pill abuse. I've also suffered for years. I know a lot of people do, um, perhaps including yourself with uh, chronic migraines. And um, I was prescribed a medication way back when I was 21, a controlled substance called Fioranol, yep. which became increasingly dependent on and began to abuse. And all of this, it became kind of like the perfect storm for myself and Kevin and my medical ailments. Um, at that period of time in 2008, the worldwide economy crashed. Um, I was becoming increasingly dependent on drugs and alcohol to get me through this chronic rejection. Poor Kevin was, you know, he's losing clients and we were suffering financially. It was really just, um, well, I write about it in the book, but it was a horrific period of time to walk through. And a couple of years later, Kevin was a match to give me a kidney, which was, you know, there really aren't words for that. I mean, it's, we really were like a brother sister match, which is completely extraordinary. Um, but my addiction continued to escalate. And this is the thing I assume, you know, we, we might talk about later in the podcast, but what I've learned about addiction and what I do believe is that is, it is a disease. Um, it's listed in the American Medical Association as a disease. It has treatments. Um, it's, excuse me, it has symptoms. It, re, um, it is progressive and it responds to treatment. And so, and it's also listed uh, in two components, physical and psychiatric. And this is what I believe it to be. I actually believe it to be a trifold disease, but we didn't know what we were dealing with at the time. And, um, and so uh, after my first, after the second kidney transplant, my addiction had just, I mean, I had crossed what we call an Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had crossed that invisible line. I'd lost the power of choice. And so the first thing I did after our set, our transplant, we were, we were up in the Ramada Inn on Santa Monica Boulevard near Cedar Sinai. And um, the first thing I did, my husband and my sister-in-law who was come down from Winnipeg to take care of us, um, they'd gone to get some groceries for me to, so I could enjoy some of the foods I hadn't been able to eat for so long. And I drank a Corona with my Dilaudid and my Percocet. That was the first thing that made sense to me to do. I'd simply lost the power of choice. Um, you know, addiction had, it had hijacked my brain, sure. centered in our minds. And um, this is what makes sense to me. And this is how I treat it every day. 
And I literally just, it went to the top of the list, like nothing else mattered in those last few months before I went into treatment. And I went into treatment for um, drug addiction and alcoholism in um, 2011. It was quite a year for us. So that's, that's the opening. (laughs) Well, and I think I mentioned this to you that when I was reading the book, um, I wanted to read it as a novel. I didn't, I didn't want to believe this was you because that's not who I see today, but I had to keep stopping myself and picturing what it had to have been like for you, for your husband, for your wonderful sister-in-law who came in and intervened. Um, And not all of us have somebody like that in our life. But there was one um, section in the book that really got to me. And Kevin got a job, um, I believe in Los Angeles and you were living a little further away. So it was gonna be an overnight. And you realized that you you needed your Percocet mm-hmm. and you went to the pharmacy. And basically you talked about crawling to the pharmacy and nobody walks in California. We know that everybody is in a car, but you don't have a car and you're, and I'm just reading this and saying, my God, how bad did it have to get? Um, and that's when I realized that we have to stop being so judgmental. Um, you know, whether we're addicted to drugs, alcohol, sex, food, an addiction is real. And until somebody can come in and, you know, shake it out of us and we're still going to be addicted, Mm -hmm. we're going to know how to live with it and not to destroy ourselves. And that's what I saw was happening when you wrote about being in therapy. Mm -hmm. And even in therapy, you tried to cheat. Oh yeah, I mean, addiction is alcoholism. You know, I have to be frank, you know, the way I view it today is through the lens of Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, and by no means am I promoting it. There's all kinds of ways that people right. get stay sober. And I understand that and appreciate that. But the 12 steps that so many other offshoot programs have developed as a result of these steps, um, you know, Gamblers Anonymous, Sex and Love Anonymous, um, Narcotics Anonymous, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the 12 step program really is about the inside job. It really is about fixing ourselves internally. And part of that is understanding that we're powerless. I mean, that's number one. That's just the number one step that I, I'm, I admit that my life, I'm completely powerless over drugs and alcohol or whatever substance. But the second part of that step talks about how my life has become unmanageable. And that's the part that is sometimes really hard for people to understand because they come into the rooms and they're like, well, I have a job and I have a car and I have this and that. And so my life's not unmanageable. I can manage all these things, but it really is about the inside, the the spiritual condition. Like, am I, am I a thriving person? Am I a good person? Am I somebody who manipulates and steals and cheats and lies so that I can get alcohol so that I can get drugs? And, you know, for me, it took a long time. It took a couple of years before I really understood what that meant. 
um, I had gone into treatment after the second transplant for uh, 60 days for two months. And I was still at just a shaking, quivering mess when I came out. I didn't know how to do anything anymore without pills, without alcohol. It was, it was my anchor. It was, it was not a crutch. It was my anchor. It was essentially, and people hate this word, or a lot of people do. It was my God. It was my higher power. And so until you replace that with something else, that's still going to be the thing you think you should go to, to get relief, to get comfort, to, um, to use as a tool in tough situations. I mean, how many of us just come home from a hard day of work and have a glass of wine just to right. like diffuse and kick back and, and feel at peace and ease with our situations. And that's no longer an option for the addict, because like I said earlier, we've lost the power of choice. So when I have, when I take a pill, when I take a sip or a toke, which I never really did, um, I, I lose that power of choice. I develop a craving now that I cannot overcome. And there will simply never be enough. There will never be enough with 50 pills. There will never be enough with a hundred pills. In fact, the two times that I overdosed on over a hundred pills, I don't even know what I was trying to do. I was what I, I know now that I had a craving that was triggered, right. that I was simply physiologically, I believe we are different or physiologically different. And I was trying to overcome that craving. And my brain is telling me, if you just come at it these different ways, you'll be able to get the same result you used to get. And I simply can't do that anymore. And so the 12 steps, once I got that second part of the first step, it was a moment, a couple of years, which I do talk about um, in the book. It was a moment after Kevin had had his back surgery. And I finally was getting how my actions and my behaviors had affected him and impacted him, which to someone like you reading the book is like, how can this woman not see what a tornado she is? But we're so locked inside it. And it's not an excuse. It's just an explanation. Sure. Of the condition really is centered in our minds. And so I remember standing there in our kitchen and my husband had been in the hospital for three nights and I had brought him home. And, you know, Karen, all I had to do was make him a tray of food. That's all I had to do was show up. And he, we were doing everything to try and keep me sober. We had um, a key around his neck. We had his pills locked under our bed. It was all this external stuff, right? Trying to figure out how do we stop this from happening? And I remember standing there in the kitchen and just feeling like, I don't know how to live life. I don't know how to take care of him. I was obsessed. I was resentful. I was angry. I felt in self-pity, which is insane considering he had shown up for every appointment. He had paid the mortgage. He had done the thing that you're supposed to do when you take care of somebody. And I remember just having this moment of, oh, I get it now. And I just screamed. My life is unmanageable. That's the unmanageability. It's that internal, that spiritual condition that I couldn't even show up in a kind manner for my husband, because I was so obsessed with myself and his pills and how I felt. And that was the moment that I let go, that I finally let go and then truly began to, to do the rest of the steps and understand I can't do this alone. That's just the way that I'm built. I, that's what I believe. That's just the way that I'm built. Well, that and, and that was one of the reasons that I've been asking 
for a long time to have you on here because so many of us don't understand it. If we don't have an addiction or we don't recognize if we have an addiction, we don't understand why somebody else does. And, um, you know, I've shared with you that I've been a migraine sufferer now most of my life. I started at 18 years old. And in the beginning, my mother would say to me, you know, just work through it. And because of that, I didn't become addicted to medication, but I became addicted to the pain. And when I would go to a doctor and say, I have this pain, I was almost afraid for them to take it away because I was identifying if, if I feel this sick, I'm alive. But what happens if I don't feel this headache anymore? Mm. Where am I going to be? And so I was asking for help. But then when they would give me help within a day or two, I'd say, oh, this, these pills aren't working. And I throw them away. Mm. And so to me, that was as bad of an addiction in some ways as what you went through. And people don't understand we all respond differently to different aspects in life. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Kevin, and even in the book, sometimes you don't say some very nice things about him. And then you turn around and you say some wonderful things about him. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you were writing the book? Oh, such a great question. Yeah. Um, well, the whole process of coming to write the book was just a, I don't know, baptism by fire. It was, I had, I had developed a blog when I was first diagnosed with chronic kidney rejection. And in fact, it was Kevin who set me up with it, which is very curious because I had never expressed really any interest in writing. I'd won a contest in high school and I completely for, for a short story completely forgotten about that. But when I was diagnosed, that was when blogger was coming yeah. out in 2008 and people, everybody was getting a blog and, and he just set one up for me and he said, write about it. And it was the greatest thing because I didn't know where to put, like I was saying earlier about feeling so isolated with my first transplant, you know, I didn't know where to put what I was going through. And indeed a lot of it I put into drugs and alcohol, but I discovered how much I loved writing for its therapeutic value that I could to be creative because I wasn't able to pursue my acting at that time. Um, and just to sit and make sense of what was happening in the medical situation, you know, going to the hospital, my numbers, you know, all of that stuff, where was it going? What was I going to feel like all of that stuff? And so, and when I was in treatment, in fact, that became the thing that I would do between five and 7 PM. Um, we got, we were allowed to get our laptops out of contraband. Which is, you know, <laughs> And I would just sit down and hammer out a blog. And it was always written in the daily report that Henrietta is in her room writing her blog. And anyway, so it did take me, as I mentioned, you know, a little bit of time, almost two years after I went into treatment until I got my sobriety date. And I'm coming up in eight years now. And Very good. I, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. It's just amazing. Um, so when I finally got sober, it was, it was just eating at me. I wanted to tell this story and the, the main deep down reason that I wanted to tell this story is because my father died of alcoholism at 38. 
and he was a doctor himself. And I was 10. It destroyed our little family of three. And I never understood. I, it's like what you're saying. You know, people don't understand. I never understood. I don't get it. You're, you know, a handsome, creative, intelligent, successful doctor. You have a beautiful, healthy wife at the time, two beautiful, healthy young kids. We had the world in front of us. And, and all, the majority of my memories of him, every memory of him really, quite frankly, is of him with beer, drinking beer, um, or him very, very sick from alcoholism. So I was driven to write this story as I started to understand what this thing is, this beast, really, truly, that we're dealing with that um, gets activated inside of people. And I, I began writing, um, rather going to classes at UCLA. And uh, I one of the first pieces that I submitted in my first memoir writing class in 2013, teacher pulled me aside. She said, well, you're a poet for sure, but you don't know how to write a scene. And I was like, what? She's <laughs> <laughs> so, so right. And I was just, I don't know, I was just on fire. It was the first time in my life that I ever worked that hard on anything. So there was for sure the emotional component of it, which was at times, you know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, it, um, I, I feel like I don't want to trivialize it by saying that, you know, it was hard to do at times. It was, um, as I wrote the book, I was also deepening my recovery. I was working very, very hard at the 12 steps and starting to sponsor. And the more you do that type of work, which is truly spiritual work, most people in Alcoholics Anonymous are seekers. You know, we're right. trying really hard to better ourselves and to act differently and live differently. And so as I did more work there, and then as I began to write more, um, truly, you know, that old... Uh, the old adage, the, the layers of the onion were coming off and I, and more things came back, more memories came back. And the way that I treated Kevin, it was clear to me that it was completely unforgivable. Uh, it was clear to me that there was no, you know, one-time solution for any of it, that it was going to be a lifetime of, of living amends. But I also had a husband who has a, a very open heart, a very, um, we just have a, I don't know, we're just, we just, we just have a bond and he saw how hard I was working. And I think underneath it all, Karen, I think, I think he knew that I was sick and I was lost and that it was a disease that just simply had me hostage. Like it was just holding right. hostage and that he knew Henrietta was in there somewhere, but it took a lot of work. You know, we separated for a while. And, um, and I say this to anybody that's having relationship issues, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the worst thing. Sometimes it's the best thing because you, you each go away and you dismantle your old ways of being, and then you come together again and you can rebuild and which is indeed what, what the two of us did. So um, writing it was um, just on so many levels, just the greatest experience of my life. It was so hard. I was also living through years, about two and a half years in the heart of the writing that book, I had been diagnosed, undiagnosed with, with nerve pain, with essentially like a neuralgia. And that was as a result of something nobody figured out. I got a rash that went all over my body. Um, it could be the years of immunosuppressives that I was on. 
or am on still, I was prescribed a drug called uh, Neurontin or Gabapentin, yep. which a hundred percent unequivocally made it worse. And I suffered for years with like a shingles like pain where I was in excruciating pain. It felt like thorns were coming out of my skin I was on fire. I could barely wear clothes. And, um, during that period of time, like nothing would stop me. I was just driven to write this story. Um, it was, you know, it's a cliche to say if it helps one person, but there is just, I have been so deeply unsatisfied with a lot of the memoirs that I've read about addiction and a lot of the way that it's portrayed in film and television. I don't think it quite gets into um, the, the, the spiritual component of it and how sick we are and self-absorbed we are and, and how that can change with work. I know that's a very long-winded answer. But no, but was... I will tell you, for those who read the book, it's, it is so honest, and you know that it's honest, and that's why I kept wanting it to, to change. <laughs> I wanted it to be a novel. I wanted it to be a Hallmark movie. Um, but I kept saying to myself, no, you know, you can go watch that Hallmark movie. Nothing wrong with it. But it's not the truth. You know, it's not necessarily going to be happily ever after. It's not going to be easy, you know, not to want that drink or not to want that pill. Um, we live in a society where the answer to everything is a pill. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, suffering with migraines, every time I went to the neurologist, it was, well, okay, that didn't work for you. So let's try this combination, you know, and oh, that didn't work. Let's, let's try this. And I didn't keep a list of all the medicines, but as soon as something would be rattled off, I'd know and say, no, I've taken that. That's not going to work. And I finally had a neurologist who said to me, we may never mm -hmm. get a regular medication. And he finally gave me something for the extreme, but he scared me out of my mind that if I took one extra one, I'd be dead. Mm. And I sort of knew he was scaring me. It was yeah. like, I'm not going to take that chance. Yeah. And so I used to break the pill in half. And I still do to this day. And I only take a half and I don't take the other half unless it, it's not working at all. And he finally got to know me and figured out how to psychologically treat me. And I think that's part of the therapy that you've been through too, that sometimes you have to talk to yourself in your head and say, yeah, I want it, but I can't have it. Yeah, it is, it's a, it, what a great tangent, like, I mean, I came to a point with, it was more with the nerve pain. And I came to a point where I understood it was a few months into it and nobody could figure, I mean, you know, you know, the drill, I was like yep. on third dermatologist. We had done a grand rounds at USC, 40 dermatologists had looked at my skin. I'd been to an immunologist, neurologist, acupuncturist, naturopath, you know, everybody, nobody knew what the heck was going on. I was just in constant, constant pain. And there was one night where I don't know, it was two or three in the morning and 
my husband was out of town and I was in so much pain. I could barely lie back on the sheets. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to use medical marijuana. I'm just going to have to do that. I mean, I can't live like this. And my next thought was, well, you can't do that. You're a drug addict and an alcoholic. And you know, you can't do that. You know, there's not one of anything in you. And I thought, well, okay, why don't I pray on this? And there might be a lot of people rolling their eyes right now, but I tell you, that's one of the steps. This One of the step 11 is prayer and meditation. And I had to make that, that was my tipping point. You know, that was my turning point where I'm like, I'm either going to relapse and lose everything and, and most likely die because a woman who drank rubbing alcohol is probably not got another drink in her. Um, or I'm going to try and use a spiritual solution to fix my physical problem. And so I did. And I sincerely prayed on the situation and I just asked for help. I just abandoned myself. I don't know what I was praying to, but I was like, just please, please help me get to sleep. And I tell you something, Karen, I didn't grow up with religion really after my father died. That was it. Um, I've never really sought any uh, deeply any religious path. And this is not to say it doesn't, I, I'm like a big believer that everybody needs to find their own journey, whatever works for them. But something happened that night. I was still in pain. I mean, I'm not going to say it like magically went away. Right. Something shifted in me where I felt like I wasn't alone in the situation anymore. And I, from that day forward, if I try to stay in conscious contact with some kind of higher power, something bigger than me, I call him big G, you know, there's just something inside of me where I don't feel alone. And I feel my perception shifts and I'm able to handle what's happening. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean the pain goes away, but it has proven to me the power of prayer proven to me the power of meditation, which I also do, which has been around for thousands of years. Right. We know that it reduces blood pressure. And, um, and that that's what you're talking about too, is that too many, too many people are, and the way society is structured now, everything is so quick and so instant or so overstimulated. And there just must be the silver bullet. And there isn't sometimes it's just hard internal work. Exactly. And, and I have stayed sober through extraordinary pain. And I don't take credit for that by myself. It's through a community of people and through some kind of higher power. And, um, and, and we must incorporate that in our healing processes. We must incorporate that when we go to the doctors. And I'm starting to hear that, which is great. I'm starting to hear more like, do you have any kind of spiritual practice or what else do you do? Do you exercise? Do you meditate? You know, and which is great because we are mind, mind body, right. spirit. We're not exactly. just. Body. And, you know, I find it interesting when you talk about community because there is a huge community for the alcoholic, for the addict. And those of us who don't have a label, we strive to have that community, but we don't know where to find it. And for a long time, um, my friends, my family, they, you can't have a headache that bad if you're out with us or you're working. And I'd say, you, you just don't know. Nobody, it doesn't feel any better if I lay down in bed. So I am up, I am moving but I'm miserable. Mm 
I'm not a happy person, but I'm going to pretend that I'm happy. And my mother for years would say to me, you know, why are you faking this? And I don't think she meant to be mean, but my yeah. mother never had a headache a day in her life. And so she couldn't imagine how her daughter could go through this. And it really wasn't until I started podcasting that the community came together. They didn't have to have migraines, but understanding any kind of pain, it can be pain from a relationship. It can be um, a loss. When you start talking about it, the results are the same. You have to dig deep inside of yourself yeah. and you can't be silent. Yeah. And we were, I grew up in a silent generation. You don't talk about those things. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's so, so, so true. I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Oprah. I wish she was still around, <laughs> but, but no, I, I mean, I, when she started to bring up, you know, sometimes these very um, taboo subjects, you know, it was exciting to bear witness to that. Yes. Like I said um, earlier, it was so isolating. My heart breaks when I look back at pictures of myself as that young 19, 20, 21 year old who just had that transplant. Um, I, I didn't know how to find a community. And in fact, like I said, transplantation was so new. There wasn't much of a community. And a lot of people that had kidney transplants were old. I mean, I was 19. Right, right. So um, I will say that, you know, in just as one example, when I was going through this, when I was on this drug gabapentin and then was taken off it and I was taken off it improperly by physicians that didn't mean any harm, but I was not even tapered off this drug. And I went into a long, long period of time where I was in intense pain. And I went online because I was like, this can't be happening. This, this is, I can feel it in my body that something is wrong. And there were support groups all over the world. There were Facebook groups led by a woman who had had this experience with gabapentin. Um, you can go onto Instagram now and you can just plug in a hashtag and you can start to find people. And I find all of that really, really exciting and comforting. Um, you know, and I, and then in terms of a community like Alcoholics Anonymous, that is the thing I think that saves us every single time we check into a meeting and for a while it's been on Zoom, but it is that shared way of thinking. You know, I remember hearing once, it's gonna sound horrific to a normal person, but I remember hearing a gentleman say, I sold my father's dog for money so that I could buy crack. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, I can see why you do that because you're just held hostage. Like there's nothing else in the world that means anything to you than continuing that obsession and continuing that craving um, and staying, staying high. And um, to be in a community like that where nobody judges you for that, because that is just, that's your first alcoholic thought. Like I said, that was my first alcoholic thought. I'll have to smoke medical marijuana. My next thought, because I have a spiritual program and I'm trying is no, no, let's try something else. And then you have the ability to share your deepest, darkest with not only a group of people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but when I sponsor women, you know, to be able to see the way they think change 
because as they work through the steps themselves and start to uncover their past, they start to uncover their resentments. It is, um, it's invaluable. It really is invaluable, but it is, it, it's something I believe so strongly in, which is if you can, and if you're capable, it doesn't have to be in the format of a podcast, but sharing your story, even if it's one other person, there's somebody else out there that needs to hear what you're suffering with and what you're dealing with, because you're right. There's my brother is a, is an ER physician. So he understands a lot of this intellectually, but he's barely been sick in his life. In fact, my niece did a, a project on, on both of us. And she was, she had to research and, um, and write down diseases that family members had had. And the only thing my brother had on his was, um, an appendectomy that he had when he was 11. And then I, you know, I started to tell her all my stuff. <laughs> she said, Hang on, how do you spell glomerulonephritis? <laughs> <laughs> my brother, you know, and my mom's like healthy as a horse. She's almost 80. She gave me her kidney, you know, when she was in her forties, she was in Dubai two years ago. Like she's, they don't understand that part of it. It is so hard to, to, to not have our blood understand that. But at the same time, I really do believe nowadays, if you do a little uncovering and it's like what you just said, by doing your podcast and sharing your story, it is so powerful. It, it educates, it, it empowers people so they don't feel alone. It's, um, and it entertains people. Like story is, story is how we learn. Story is how Absolutely. we grow. It's how we find compassion, I hope for each other. You know, I could get into a whole other tangent on that, but yeah. Well, and I, when you talked about that, you, you took a writing class. Okay. Even if you're not going to take a writing class, it doesn't make any difference how you write. Okay. But just writing it out. And I remember when I decided to take hold of my pain. Um, it was at the time that uh, my son, who's on the autism spectrum, um, he's as traditional as any young person out there, but because he had the label, everybody saw him differently. So I started writing about that. And as I wrote about it, in many ways, I made my pain worse, but I knew what was doing. I knew what was triggering it. And as I was writing, I was sharing my writing with my two brothers. And my father loved to write, and so do they. And I was told as a very young child, leave the writing to us, you're not good at it. Mm -hmm. And I believed it, okay? Mm -hmm. But when I started writing and I shared it with my brothers, they said, like, where did you learn to write? I said, I'm writing from internally. This is what I feel. And I said, and I may have some spelling errors and I may have some grammar errors, but this is the source of it. And my brothers got to really know me and I didn't realize how well they were getting to know me. Mm -hmm. um, and every once in a while now, they'll say something to me and I'll go, how do you know that? And it's like, you wrote about it. Um, but it started to make me feel good. It made me start to feel human that, you know, yeah, there's something maybe wrong with my son and maybe wrong with me, but none of us are perfect. And no. so now it's time to share so that, 
you know, I don't have to explain it in a conversation. You're going to know and accept me for who I am. And if you can't, I'll, I'll go find somebody else. Um, And again, when I read your book, it changed me again. It made me stop and not question other people around me. Um, My husband gets headaches all the time and, you know, he takes a Tylenol when he thinks of it, you know, and I'll be going, you're suffering. Why are you suffering? And he goes, if you didn't tell me I was suffering, I wouldn't know. <laughs> but I can see it in the way he works and how and what he's doing. And then I realized, stop suggesting it to him. Let him take care of himself the way he takes care of himself. And my son, the same way, about four years ago, he took all of his meds and threw them away. He said, these make me feel terrible. And he's more with it today than he ever was on all those meds. Wow. So again, wow. doctors are great. They're there to help us, but they don't have all the answers. No, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And I, I do think um, doctors sometimes get a bad rap, but there's a lot of great ones out there. I've been, I've been really, really fortunate with the ones that I've had. Um, but you know, I think what you're saying kind of brings to mind. I remember seeing a speaker, um, in AA and she said something like, nobody is coming to save you. And it sounded really harsh, but I think behind it was this idea that we have to take responsibility for ourselves and you allowing your husband and your, your son to have their own experience of life. And that's something that I've had to do too, is in terms of my judgmental, I, I, I've been harshly, severely judgmental of people and, and punishing of them. And, and I've learned that it's not my, that the more that I have a connection with a higher power and a God, and, um, and I understand that I'm not God, <laughs> that everybody else gets to have their own experience of life. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. So before we end this briefly, tell me about your sister-in-law who, sure. to me, she's, she's an angel sent from heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will happily tell you about Kim. Um, Kim is extraordinary. She's one of those people that just kind of exists to be a vessel to help and to support and um, her love and compassion is unconditional. She works uh, in, a, in a facility here in Winnipeg called Work and Social Opportunities. It's WASO. And she helps uh, mentally and physically handicapped adults with uh, day programs, with housing, contract work. And she's the CEO of like four or five different facilities here, I think, in, in Winnipeg. So right there, that gives you an idea. She's devoted her life ever since she was, I think, 16. She's volunteered with them and now risen to CEO. Wow. She's extraordinary in that capacity. But Kim was, um, yes, she came down to be with me and Kevin after our transplant, and she was there for two weeks. And during that period of time, you know, there's a mention of it in the book. Um, you know, I was becoming, I was spiraling into drug addiction and I never got any judgment from her. Never, never anything but love. And what can I do? How can I assist? 
And then when I started writing the book, I, I'd been putting some of my work out on Facebook, just, just pieces and reflections, mostly about chronic illness and health and pain and addiction. And I kind of put it out there when I was taking my classes at UCLA. And I said, would anybody like to read pieces and perhaps eventually be like a beta reader for my book? Um, and eventually I had six people. I think originally I had 12 people come on board and, and then eventually they just couldn't keep up with the way I was right. writing. And so I had six people uh, be a beta reader for the entire first draft, which is an amazing experience. And Kim was one of them, which if you have to, I mean, maybe you have to read the book to fully appreciate, but the way I spoke about her husband, her brother, her, her brother, my husband, the way I spoke about Kevin, what Kevin went through, um, nobody, nobody had any idea the depths of my addiction Nobody had any idea the depths of how Kevin was trying to balance everything. Um, and for Kim to every week or however often it was that I sent out new pages every two weeks, you know, open her inbox and see another, again, layer of the onion, you know, peeled away mm. and just see the depths of addiction and how Kevin had been brutalized by it, essentially. Um, just show, and all she did was give me great constructive, uh, non-judgmental feedback. She was extraordinary. She's, um, there's very few people like her. I think her only flaw sometimes is that she forgets to look after herself, which I tell her all the time. Um, but she's, you know, she's truly, I call her my sister in love because she's not a sister-in-law. She's my sister in love. I'm so intrigued that you wanted to know about her because she's really, there's very few people like that who, who truly are just I think placed on this earth to help other people and just by their mere presence, you know? Well, and you can tell that in the book and I was so grateful for her. Mm. It was like, there's somebody maybe who doesn't understand, but she understands enough that you need help. And um, she wasn't gonna let anything get in her way for you to get the help. And yeah. you're right. There are very few people that we can count on in this world who are going to go to those lengths. Um, and obviously she's yeah. born with this compassion. I think she also has a very strong spiritual life. She's very committed to her church. And that was something I used to dismiss completely, very judgmental about religion. And like I said, um, everybody gets their opportunity to explore what works for them. And so she's got a very strong spiritual life and connection with her God, whatever that is. And a lot of, um, she does a lot of volunteer work too with a group called Next Step, which is a transitional group for people that have been imprisoned for drug and alcohol abuse. And it's in, in a way, it's kind of like, um, you know, like a support group, a liaison mm -hmm. between being incarcerated in the real world and people check in about where they're at. Do they have a job? Are they sober? This and that. I've actually spoken at that group a couple of times. And so she had a very, I didn't, I actually didn't realize when I asked her to start reading the pages, how profound her understanding of addiction was that she was. And, and even then she's like, I still don't understand why you would, because I wouldn't act that way. Meaning I wouldn't have a drink if I'd already, if I was already falling over drunk, I wouldn't drink rubbing alcohol, but she never had any judgment about it because she, the thing about her is that she's willing, she's willing to learn 
and to grow and to deepen her understanding. And in my experience of life, and this is not to be cynical, it's because I was the same way. A lot of people aren't willing. They're very locked in their ideas about the world. It works for them, or maybe it doesn't work so well, but they can't see that. And, um, you know, I think generally, and I work on this too every day, human beings have a choice to either be rooted in fear or try and work towards some kind of faith. And I have to ask myself every day, where am I on that spectrum between fear and faith? And am I willing to look at life differently? Am I willing to try something differently? Am I willing to grow? Am I willing to be, to be open-minded? And am I willing to try and be as honest as I can? You know, I used to think honesty was telling you, Karen, what was wrong with you. Oh, I'm being honest. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, now I've learned it's this direction and that's the work where the work is. So tell everybody where they can find this wonderful book, In Pillness and in Health. You bet. Well, it's on Amazon. It's called In Pillness and in Health. And it's in the memoir section. And you just type it in and you'll see my face. <laughs> Drowning in pill quicksand. <laughs> you can easily spot it. Um, here in Winnipeg, it's in a couple bookstores. I was self-published. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. It's been an amazing journey to do that and been very successful and um, appreciate anybody's support. And you're working on other books too? Yes. Yeah. I'm working on my second book and have been for a while now and which is also going to be a memoir and I'm going to, it's really targeted towards uh, people we just been discussing who suffer with chronic illness and chronic pain and really digging into my spiritual life and in a way that doesn't just talk about addiction and how that's possible, even if you are suffering with chronic illness and pain. And then I'm also adapting my memoir into um, a spec for a limited series for Netflix or something. So busy and grateful, very, very much so. And how's Kevin doing? He's great. <laughs> it was a rough pandemic, I'll be yeah. honest. Um, he's as a result of not being able to do as much photography he's been doing other things and um, his creative life is just exploding so it's been wonderful to see it's that is absolutely wonderful I have to tell you my husband um, was in the photo industry when he was young and he um, he loves taking out his camera and just going anywhere and taking pictures um, and I keep saying to him, what are we ever going to do with all of them? And he said, I don't know. I don't care. I just enjoy being behind the lens. So I can understand Kevin's love as well. So yeah, it's, you know, I encourage everybody. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad or you make money. That's a whole other issue to just be creative. Just find something that you love and just do it because you love it. You know, that Absolutely. is a big part of a spiritual life. I really believe that. Well, I want to have the two of you back at some time because um, I want everybody to get to meet Kevin um, because I'm in love with them. That's all I can tell you. Um, <laughs> but I'm so glad that the two of you are doing well and good luck on the new book. And, um, you know, I will constantly stay in touch. Yeah, you bet. We're going to stay in touch. Of course we are. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Have a great day. Thank you.